friends. My name is Mark Dever. I'm the pastor of the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., and we have the joy of knowing Bert uh, from uh, time he spent with us some years ago now, and we pray for you all, and I'm sure in D.C. we prayed last Sunday for this time, and I'm sure they're praying also, as Aaron mentioned, his own congregation, so our congregation in D.C. is remembering this time in prayer together. Let me encourage you to open your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel chapter 37. I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me among them, And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley. And behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord." So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live 
and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Friends, if there is anything that seems final, irreversible, terminal, conclusive, it's death. In a gathering like this, of this size, there must be those dealing with death. In our own congregation, we just lost a young woman, 28 years old, in a car accident two weeks ago, beloved member of our congregation. When you have several hundred people together in this fallen world, we will frequently know what it means to encounter death. The advances of modern medicine aside, the mortality rate is still one out of one. Nothing at all the medical colleges in Georgia will change that. Great billionaires can look as they will for eternal life through medical sciences, and they'll never find it. From the greatest to the smallest, from the weakest to the strongest, we all die. Indeed, death as the inevitable conclusion to life is one of the few things in all of human experience to have been met with no exceptions. No one, not one. Well, I mean, I say not one. There is this idea of resurrection. As Christians, we're used to using that word, but as you If you think about it, it's actually a very strange idea. To think of resurrection at all, death and life have to meet. As the Book of Common Prayer puts it, in the midst of life, we are in death. But it's the second meeting of the two. Meeting again, which is really the unexpected reversal. In the midst of death, we are in life. And from this passage we've just read from the book of Ezekiel, I want to speak to you this morning about resurrection. And in this passage we see what we might call in our own internet days a virtual resurrection. That's really what's going on here with these dry bones in these first ten verses. You see the nation is destroyed there. That's the situation. When he begins, he's seeing a vision of of destruction in those first few verses of death, in this famous vision, what Ezekiel sees is a valley full of dry bones. So many bodies left out to decay. And the drying bones seem to suggest that what Ezekiel was seeing in the way they were arranged was an army slain whose defeat was so complete that there was no one left to go out and bury their bodies. And so they were left there alone and desolate. But then in the context of this utter desolation, we find in verse 3 a hint of something more. And the verses which follow confirm just that. God has a way of life 
for these envisioned dead. And so he calls Ezekiel to prophesy. And he does this twice, really, you see here in verses 4 to 10. So to this collection of corpses, so decomposed that they're simply described as, as bones, and even bones which were dry. God tells Ezekiel to speak. That's what a crazy image. Speak to dead bones? I mean, you can tell this is, this is prophecy from the Lord. This is inspired by him because you and I would not think this up. We would put flesh and bones, flesh on the bones, and have them standing as an hour, and then we would prophesy to them when they would have ears and could hear and understand. But that would miss the point of what the Lord is saying here. No, he tells Ezekiel to prophesy to these bones, and as Ezekiel prophesies, God says he would put breath in them, and they would come to life. He says there in verse 5, I will cause breath. So just as God caused the first man, Adam, to live by putting breath into him, so now he says to Ezekiel that he will give these dry bones life, and this will happen in Ezekiel's vision. He prophesies, and this whole vast army is brought back from the dead. The first stage is there in verses 4 to 8. That's where the the bodies are sort of refashioned. And then verses 9 and 10 are really the second stage, where, where life comes into them, breath. It's interesting the way the Lord does that with Ezekiel. He is echoing the account of creation. Remember back in Genesis 2, where the Lord forms man, and then he puts breath into him. He's showing that he is the creator and Lord of all. It also heightens the effect, I think. It shows that the climax is not merely the fashioning of the body, the, the moving of matter around, it is the creation of life. It's a, a dramatic way to spotlight it. And then, of course, they're resurrected. It happens in this vision. Now, I say it happens in this vision because lest we get too excited, we have to remember that according to the text, This is really virtual miracle working. This is not something that happened in history. This is a vision that God gives Ezekiel. Ezekiel is is seeing this. This is a, a, a vision God gives him. It's a tremendous vision. But it's just a vision. Well, I say just a vision. I mean, it does point to another resurrection. The the reason the Lord gave Ezekiel this vision is because of another resurrection in space and time that he intended to effect, and that's the resurrection of Israel. Because the nation of Israel had been exiled, says in verse 11, you look there in our passage, These bones stand for the whole house of Israel who say, our hope is lost. Uh, The nation of Israel in Ezekiel's day was in exile. They were refugees in Babylon, and God had commissioned 
the former priest named Ezekiel to be a special messenger to his people. They were in exile because they had strained their relationship with God to the breaking point. They had, as Ezekiel puts it earlier in this book, committed adultery. They had gone whoring after other gods. So God had them taken away, pulled out of their land, separated, brought into exile in Babylon. They'd been in Babylon for years at this point. And now, in the book of Ezekiel, they had just received the news that Jerusalem had not only been captured again, as it had been when they were deported years earlier, but that it had now been destroyed. And the Lord knew that when the people heard that Jerusalem had been destroyed, it's not like you just lost the house because you couldn't make the mortgage payments. You've now heard the house has burned down. There's nothing to go back to. Their hope, as he says here, is gone. So alone and rejected, far from their land, their lives disrupted, family members killed, the people of Israel in exile by the waters of Babylon were desperate. They were hopeless. They were heartsick. Friend, this lesson from the Old Testament is relevant to you this morning. If you've come to church with a sense of quiet desperation, as somebody who comes to church, you know how to come to church. You know you need to look a certain way. You need to have a certain deportment about you. You need to have a, a certain appearance, certain ability to greet others, deal with social demands. But honestly, between you and the Lord, He knows how close you are to just sort of letting go of the rope. This is a passage for you. If you are feeling hopeless like that, if you're feeling your marriage can't take much more, you're just at the end of your rope. Look at this passage. Think about what God can do. Perhaps your relationship with the Lord seems like it's about done. People can experience these things that are heart-crushing, and sometimes we just don't know where to go in the Bible for any hope at all. And friends, I know few passages in the Bible that are more like you've run to the end of a dead-end alley and you think there's no hope, and then this happens. Something you did not expect at all. And the way this vision was given, it's even emphasizing that point. You know, hope, hope is a funny thing. Except in its most immediate and intense form, like with children around Christmas when they're expecting gifts. When we have hope, we don't tend to notice it. It's just a normal thing we operate with. But you let that hope seep away. You let that hope begin to decline. And you notice that you don't have it. And all of life begins to seem heavier. The proverb says, hope disappointed makes the heart 
grow sick. That's what the Israelites were like. They were, they were already exiles, and now they receive this crushing news that Jerusalem's been destroyed. It's at this point that God calls Ezekiel to prophesy to the people of Israel. He says there in verse 12, prophesy to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. That is shocking news. That, that is not what they were expecting to hear coming along with the news that Jerusalem had just been destroyed. Ezekiel came and brought news to them of restoration. God was promising them that just as this slain army would be revivified, brought to life again, so the scattered, exiled nation of Israel would be reassembled and restored. I mean, this was almost impossible news. No one expected that this is what would happen. This was the, the unforgivable being forgiven, the lost being found, the unsalvageable being rescued and, and loved and treasured. This is the, the dead being brought back to life. Do you notice why he said he was going to do this? Whenever you read through Ezekiel, it's good to notice the why. He says this so many times in this book for all of his actions. And for this, the most remarkable of them, he's very clear. He says it down in verse 13. Well, he says it up in verse 6. This resurrection that he was going to do was not just sort of spectacular magic. Something to impress four judges on America's Got Talent. No, this... This is not done to amaze or amuse, like if I pull a rabbit out of my sleeve or right now just rise up and fly around the room. No, this miracle would be done specifically. This restoration would have a purpose. It was not an end in itself, but it was a means for the Lord to be known. Verse 6, to the dry bones, God says he'll give them life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And then down in verse 13, God says that he's restoring Israel so that the people will know that I am the Lord. And their restoration will cause them to know that I am the Lord. So God was restoring Israel to teach Israel and the surrounding nations about himself. When God restores, when he gives you new life in Christ, when he gives your church new life, he values you as a Christian. He values your congregation. But the point is not you. The point is not your congregation. The point is the God who gives life. You look up and you see who has done this. Who does things like this? So was this fulfilled? Yes, it was fulfilled. Israel was brought back into the land the nation of Israel was reassembled. There's much more we could say and follow that. But for our purposes this morning, I just wonder, does this vision point to anything beyond Israel? It's a vision that Ezekiel has been given by the Lord. 
And it really happens in space and time in the sense that the nation of Israel is, is reconstituted and reassembled in the land. But is there anything else that it points to? Well, I think in the theology of the Bible, there certainly is. It points to the resurrection of the true servant of the Lord. It points to Christ's resurrection. Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried. You see, like this slain army, like the nation of Israel, Jesus Christ was slain. But by the power of God, he too was raised. Like the army and the nation, Christ was raised. He was resurrected. And it's interesting, Jesus spoke in his teaching to his disciples of his own resurrection as a sign. Uh, There's too many places for us to go to about this, but if you want to mark it down and look up later, in Matthew 12, 38 to 40, Jesus taught that his resurrection would happen, amazing in and of itself, but that it would be a sign of something even more. And Paul wrote that Christ's resurrection from the dead was through the Holy Spirit, And we see in Romans 1, he says, it declared Jesus to be the Son of God. So the identity of Christ was made known through God's resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So as with the restoration of Israel, so even the resurrection of Christ was not an end in itself. But it was a means. For what? For God to make himself known. This is who God is. This this is what God is like. God's power over death is his ultimate signature as creator. We read this throughout the pages of the New Testament. It echoes. I'm preaching through Hebrews in our own church back in D.C. and, And one of the great arguments that the writer to the Hebrews makes back in chapter 7 is that there are the priests of Aaron and their, their, their sons over the temple in Jerusalem, and they're still offering sacrifices. But you know, they have to keep offering them, and then you have to keep getting new priests because they all die. But Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, whose death is not recorded in Scripture. And Jesus did not die. He never needs to be replaced. He presented his sacrifice once for all time, and he can now, as it says in Hebrews 7, save to the uttermost those who trust in him. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we become the righteousness of God through Christ's substitutionary death for us if we trust in him. So Christ's resurrection was the confirming proof of God's faithfulness to his people. Through it comes the continuation of his people that he's making for himself. What we just read in 1 Corinthians 15 a few minutes ago. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And what is Christ called? The first fruits. What that means is he's not going to be the only one. Easter is not the end. Easter is the beginning. It means the final resurrection has begun with his being raised. He is proof that there's more to follow. So that means not only is there the vision that God gave Ezekiel, and not only is there the fulfillment of it in space and time in Israel, going back to the land, but there's also Jesus Christ 
and his own bodily resurrection, but more than that, this vision that is pointing on through Christ's resurrection to your resurrection. You realize that. Some here this morning may not have thought of yourself as a candidate for resurrection. You may not have thought of yourself as dead, at least not yet. But according to the New Testament, we are all by nature dead in our transgressions and sins, as we just read from Ephesians 2. That's why God told the Jewish religious leader Nicodemus that he had to be born again. And that since everyone is in need of spiritual resurrection in order to know the Lord. Do you want to know God? You have to be raised from the dead, spiritually speaking, if you want to know God. Well, how can we get that needed new start? Well, we get a picture of it here in Ezekiel 37. We get it by the Word. Life comes by the Word of God. What was the testimony? I heard again and again last night, Bert, about your preaching, that it was faithful. Whether it was Berea or here, what did you do? You came with lots of fancy new programs that impressed everybody, how great you are? No. You faithfully brought the Word. And what happens when God's Word is preached? Life comes. God gets glory to Himself by the truth about Himself, especially in Jesus Christ being presented. So you look in Ezekiel 37 here, verse, verse 11, God interprets this vision for Ezekiel. He says that these bones stand for the whole house of Israel who say, our hope is gone. Their own hopelessness and despair, God poignantly, poignantly represents as death. And His answer to this people, as it was to the dry bones, He says there in verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And how does he say he'll do it? By his word. Now again, friends, I just want to point out, this is so different than what you and I would do if we were authoring this vision, if we wanted to make it credible. We would make the army live so that they could listen. We would then have Ezekiel prophesy to them. But no. No, the Lord has Ezekiel speak his word to them while they are dead. While every doctor present will explain, explain to us there's nothing to pick up those audible waves to make any intelligible, intelligible communication go on. It just is nonsense. Doesn't make any sense at all to have the word come to dead bones. But it's very interesting. He has Ezekiel speak his word to them specifically while they're dead. And as he does that, they come to life. How about that? As he does that, speaks not his own word, speaks the Lord's word, they come to life. A bit, a bit like the way God called Ezekiel. If you go back and read the first three chapters of Ezekiel this afternoon, you'll find out in chapters two and three, the Lord tells Ezekiel up front, how about this for a pastoral call? I'm going to call you to talk to the people, and by the way, they will not listen. They will be hard-hearted. They will not listen to one word you say, but I'm calling you to go say it. All right? Not sure I understand why you give such a call, Lord, but 
you are Lord, I'll take that call. And so for years, Ezekiel had this ministry of speaking the word of the Lord to people whose hearts were hard and dead. But the Lord had appointed it. He was going to make it clear that just like he had spoken into the void and created all things by the power of his word, so he would again, after making it clear that all Israel was, was a void, spiritually speaking. Dead, spiritually speaking. After that was so clear, in the same way as his word had come into the world, as John says in his gospel, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. Yet by that word, the Lord Jesus Christ, God has begun creating his new society on earth. So God told Ezekiel here to to speak to these dry bones. Life, breath, spirit, speech, words. See, that's all together there in that idea. Very similar, it reminds me of the account in the Gospels uh, in Mark 7, where Jesus, in Mark seven thirty two, some people brought a man to Jesus who was deaf. I love this account. Mark seven thirty two. Jesus looked up to heavens with a deep sigh, said to the man, be opened. And this man's ears were opened. You get that. Don't miss it. Jesus spoke to a deaf man. Oh, yeah. I mean, he knew exactly what he was doing. He was making a point with the way he brought life. In the ministry of Jesus, we see Jesus calling out his people to himself in just the way that Ezekiel prophesied here. In the previous chapter that I read to many of you who were here last night, you see those famous verses in 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Brothers and sisters, if you've come to Christ, you know that's a description of what happened to you. Becoming a Christian is not just going to a different religious meeting and having a different code of conduct. It includes those things. But as I told a Jehovah's Witness friend one time who was talking to me at my door, you know, I I just kind of interrupted them and I said, listen, You and I, according to the Bible, are both so bad, we don't need to do different things. We need God to grab our hearts and rip them out and give us new hearts. And the Jehovah's Witness friend who's trained to respond to many different things did not have a response to that one. It was just like, really? You know, and I got to explain the gospel to the person. Friends, that's what Jesus Christ does. He's He's creating a different kind of people, a people who show the life of God in them. Just as Jesus said to some resettled Israelites in the court in the rebuilt temple a few centuries later in Matthew 21, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. This is what we're studying in the Bible on Wednesday nights at our church. We're in Romans 9 right now where we see that Paul taught that the true Israel of God was never composed of all the physical descendants of, of Abraham. It wasn't in his own family. It wasn't in Isaac's own family. It wasn't in Jacob's own family. No, it's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, Paul says. The true Israelites had always been the community which was created by his word. 
That is those who believed God's promises. That's why Paul goes on and says in Romans 10, 17, consequently faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word of Christ. This is why Peter says to the early Christians that he's writing to the same thing that God had said to his people Israel in the Old Testament. We read in 1 Peter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So friends, in the death-like context of despair and hopelessness and a sense of being cut off, God gives Ezekiel this vision. Hope seems to be tied up with the presence of God. If you need hope in your life today, you need God. You want to find out how to get God or how God can come to know you in that way. Talk to your family members who are Christians. Talk to your parents, kids. Talk to the friend who brought you. Make sure you know what it means for you to have this new life in Christ. There seems to be a relationship between having power to live with God and living for the purposes that he made us for. It's great news we have. Friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, there is a God. You are in trouble. God is good and you are not. And I know that not because I know you individually, but because I know what the Bible tells me about me and every person, that we've all sinned. We've all done those things we shouldn't have done. And God, in his great love and mercy, sent his only son, our Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life of complete love and trust in his heavenly Father, and then to die on the cross as a substitute in the place of all of us that, over, that would ever turn and trust in him. And he calls us to do that. He is raised from the dead, ascended to heaven, presented his offering of himself to his heavenly Father, and was accepted. He now reigns as the Messiah, and he calls all of us to turn from our sins and trust in him, Friends, you should turn from your sins. You should learn what it means for you to trust in Christ. Get to know more about it. Keep coming to this church. Now talk to Pastor Bert or one of the other elders here about what that would mean in your own life. So if you've heard the word of God and you've believed, then, then you've begun to experience that eternal life now. You've, you've spiritually come to know the Lord. You've become a partial fulfillment of this very vision that the Lord gave to Ezekiel by becoming part of the true Israel, which Paul argues has always been those who have heard and responded to the life-giving Word of God. So he writes that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So trusting and relying on the truth of God's raising of Jesus Christ is the way to salvation, to being included in the people of God. God's always created his people by speaking his word. That's why even the way this church is built and is set out right now, you notice there's a pulpit here at the middle. You're all facing this way. The book is open and the guy is speaking to you from the book. Did you know Christians did this last Sunday too? We did it the Sunday before that. Actually, they were doing it before I was a Christian. 
Well, they were doing it before I was born. They were doing it before this local church was founded. In fact, if you keep on going back as an historian, you'll find that's been going on for centuries. In fact, you can go back to Luke 24 and you can find the very day Jesus was raised from the dead, he finds these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Luke makes a point of telling us it's that same day. And he sits down with them and he opens the Bible to them and shows them himself in the Bible. And then Luke also stresses that same day he meets with disciples in Jerusalem. And what does he do? He opens the Bible and explains to them about himself from the Bible. This is what Christians do. We've been doing it for a long time. We learned it from Jesus. We are shaped by his word. We're given life by his word. So we trust on, rely on the truth of God's raising people from the dead spiritually. God has always created his people by speaking his word. And without doubt, his greatest word is Jesus Christ. I love the way Hebrews begins. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. But friend, even if this does describe you this morning, even if you have trusted in Christ and you've come to know the wonders of a living relationship with God, ultimately, this life will end. Unless we're the generation who's alive when Christ returns, the mortality rate is still one out of one. Even redeemed people have bodies which are perishable. They are weak and they decay like the rest of nature around us. And so the fuller glory for us comes in the final resurrection. For all of the power of Christ's resurrection, we can know in this life, as the Apostle Paul said, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. I love the hope that's displayed depicted in the last scene of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Then there came forth a summons from Mr. Standfast, for the post brought it to him, open in his hands. The contents whereof were that he must prepare for a change of life, for his master was not willing that he should be so far from him any longer. Mr. Standfast then talks to his fellow pilgrims for a few moments. But then Bunyan writes, When Mr. Standfast had thus set things in order, And the time being come to haste him away, he also went down to the river. Now there was a great calm at that time in the river. Wherefore, Mr. Standfast, when he was about halfway in, stood a while and talked to his companions that had waited upon him thither. And he said, This river, death, has been a terror to many. Yea, the thoughts of it have often frighted me. But now methinks I stand easy. My foot is fixed upon that upon which the feet of the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant stood while Israel went over. The waters indeed are to the palate bitter and to the stomach cold. Yet the thoughts of what I'm going to and of the conduct that waits for me on the other side doth lie as a glowing coal at my heart. I see myself now at the end of my journey. My toilsome days are ended. I am now going to see that head that was crowned with thorns, and that face which was spit upon for me. I have formerly lived by hearsay and faith, but now I go where I shall live by sight and shall be with him in whose company I delight myself. I've loved to hear my Lord spoken of 
Wherever I've seen the print of his shoe on earth, I've coveted to set my foot too. His name has been to me sweeter than all perfumes. His voice has been to me most sweet. And his countenance I have more desired than they that have most desired the light of the sun. His word I did use to gather for my food and for my antidotes against my faintings. He has held me, and I have kept me from mine iniquities. Yea, my steps hath he strengthened in his way. Now while he was thus in discourse, his countenance changed. His strong men bowed under him. And after he had said, Take me, for I come unto thee, he ceased to be seen of them. But glorious it was to see how the upper region was filled with horses and chariots, with trumpeters and pipers, with singers and players on stringed instruments to welcome the pilgrims as they went up and followed one another in at the beautiful gate of the city. Friends, do you have this kind of hope in Christ? The hope that will encourage you in the darkest of days, which stretches beyond the confines of this short life? How do you get such life-defining hope? Only by God's Spirit speaking to us through His Word. I praise God, Bert, for how your preaching has been used of the Lord in this place. Uh, I do not take that for granted. A good ministry is based upon God's power exercised ordinarily through the preaching of His Word. I pray that God will enable you to continue to that. You know, friends, revival is not a time where new and strange means are used to excite the people of God. Revival is a time where we do what God tells us to in His Word. And God blesses extraordinarily. Where you do the normal things. You sing those same songs. You read those same scriptures. Only now the Holy Spirit is poured out in extraordinary measure. That's what you want to pray for. That's what may already even be happening. That's what you want to pray will happen even more. So that people will see and glorify God. I pray that you will join Him in believing the word of hope in Christ that has been so faithfully preached here. And mentioning a preacher of the word and right at this theme just leaves me with one of my other favorite quotations. It's when one preacher is preaching at the graveside service for another. The older preacher, Mr. Gifford, has just been buried. He's been a faithful preacher for decades. Mr. Ryland is speaking. And he says, farewell, thou dear old man. We leave thee in possession of death till the resurrection day. But we will bear witness against thee, O king of terrors, at the mouth of this dungeon. Thou shalt not always have possession of this dead body. It shall be demanded of thee by the great conqueror. And at that moment thou shalt resign thy prisoner. O ye ministers of Christ, ye people of God, ye surrounding spectators, prepare Prepare to meet this old servant of Christ at that day, at that hour, when this whole place shall be all nothing, but life and death shall be swallowed up in victory. Prepare. Prepare. Let's pray together. Lord God, you know the amount of hope we bring in or don't bring in to this meeting today. And you know the hope you have for us in Christ. We pray that you would prepare each one here 
for our final meeting with you. Use your word preached to do just that. Pour out your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.